Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Today's episode features a conversation with Doug Elmendorf, Dean of Harvard Kennedy School and former director of the Congressional Budget Office. He discussed why the CBO exists, how it works, and how the media reports on its findings. The event was moderated by Richard Parker, lecturer in public policy at the Kennedy School, and introduced by Nico Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Center. Today's guests, we have uh, Dean Doug Elmendorf, who was also the uh, Price Professor of Political Pol- uh, of Public Policy uh, here at the Kennedy School. From 2009 to 2015, he was uh, ran the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO. And this today's uh, uh, session comes about in part because at the suggestion of Richard Parker. Richard is an Oxford-trained economist, a lecturer here at the Kennedy School, part of the Shorenstein Center, um, uh, in part because of his history in journalism, co-founding, among other things, the magazine Mother Jones. And I'm the one sitting slightly to the dean's left. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> Just, yeah. Just slightly. Yeah. And so uh, Congressional Budget Office has been in the news a fair bit the last uh, 10 days or so between the health care bill and the scoring of the health care bill. And one might say the White House's attempt to undermine some of the scoring uh, to the president's new budget. It seemed like an appropriate time to have a hearty and robust discussion on the Congressional Budget Office, how it works and uh, uh, maybe even how it should work. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Richard and Doug. Well, I'm hoping that Doug will start with an opening statement. The reason I approached Doug on this was that the CBO is of great interest to many economists, particularly macroeconomists who think about American policy, but isn't well known to most Americans, I think it's fair to say, uh, but has an absolutely crucial role in determining Congress's ability to support uh, certain legislation. And that's the case here in this attempt to re uh, uh, to, to uh, repeal Obamacare and replace it with something. And I thought Doug, as the former head of the CBO, uh, with a great deal of experience operating in a very difficult environment in which not only are you called upon to be extremely uh, skilled as an economist, but also have to adopt a position of super Swiss neutrality between the two parties, that he might share with us some of his insights into what's going on. So. My, my good Swiss dean here will hopefully open. <laughs> Swedish. Sw- uh, Swedish, okay, fine, Swedish. There we go. Right. Thank you, Richard and Nico. Uh, thanks to all of you. I'm glad to have a chance to be here. I'll talk just a little bit, then you'll ask me some questions, and then you'll ask me questions. Uh, Ezra Klein, who runs the Vox News site, said last week, quote, the Congressional Budget Office's analysis of the American Health Care Act is one of the most singularly devastating documents I've seen in American politics." Hmm. Close quote. Now, Ezra may be uh, exaggerating for effect. Uh, in addition, Ezra is, I think, 32 years old, so the <laughs> things he's seen in American politics are <laughs> a proper subset of the things that Richard and I have seen in American politics. Or Francis, right. Um, or Francis. Um, but even discounting Ezra's comment uh, to account for, the, for those factors, uh, there's no doubt true that the CBO document last uh, week uh, has having a very important effect on American politics. So I thought I would say a few words about uh, what that document is and why it matters. Uh, CBO was uh, established in 1974 for two reasons, one very principled and high-minded and one very practical. And it's been supported by the Congress for the past 42 or three years for those same two reasons. The high-minded reason is that Congress would like to understand better what the effects of legislation would be before it votes on that legislation. And it would like to be able to tailor its legislation to have certain sorts of effects based on feedback during the preparation process and not just the feedback you ultimately get as policies unfold in the world. That's the high-minded reason. The practical reason is that Congress would like to have more power. Uh, When the CBO was established, uh, Richard Nixon was president. He was impounding funds that Congress had appropriated, meaning they'd, they'd asked for money to be spent on some purpose, and President Nixon wasn't spending it. And they wanted to stop that. And they also felt at the time, I think correctly, that the executive branch had been in ascendancy in control over the federal budget, 
notwithstanding the Constitution giving the House of Representatives a particular primacy, um, and the Congress wanted to reestablish its power over the budget. And it did that by uh, establishing the Congressional Budget Office to provide Congress with information that was not filtered through the President's Office of Management and Budget, through the executive branch, but came directly to them. They also established budget committees in the House and the Senate to pull together pieces of the budget and think about the budget in a holistic way. Uh, so that's the practical part of the, the establishment of CBO, is to give Congress more leverage in dealing with the executive branch. And when I was first appointed as director, I was appointed when the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate. This was the beginning of the Obama administration by, by coincidence in the sense that the CBO director does not work for the president, does not turn over when the president turns over, but as it happened, my predecessor was becoming director of the Office of Management and Budget. So the job came open, and I was interviewing for the job, and I was pressed about whether I would be um, independent of people in the executive branch, and I was pressed just as hard by the Democrats as I was by the Republicans. So it's an institutional prerogative um, that's being asserted. But the other way that people use CBO now in practical terms within the Congress is to get at each other. Uh, totally standard uh, when CBO would issue a report that made some people happy and some unhappy. The happy ones would say how wonderful we were, how important it was that the vice of the independent CBO be respected. And the opponents would say, oh, just a bunch of characters making something up. And the next week, there'd be some different report released, and the coalitions would be somewhat changed. <laughs> and people, without missing a beat, would go from being critics to being supporters or supporters to being critics. Um, so CBO is about both the information and about the power politics. Um, now, um, what CBO's job is, is to ignore that. CBO's job is to do the analysis and let the chips fall where they may. And I'm actually quite proud to have been part of an organization that for 42 years has done exactly that. Uh, CBO is strictly nonpartisan, and that is, that's created and maintained, I think, in a few key ways. One is that people who are hired by CBO or are drawn to CBO are people who want to get the analysis right more than they want to get some particular policy outcome. <coughs> if you want to get a particular policy outcome, that's a great thing to want to do, and there are a million jobs in Washington where you can do that. If you want to get the analysis right, uh, that's also a great and noble thing to do, and there aren't so many jobs uh, that are so close to policymaking as CBO where the analysis is the primary thing. So CBO attracts certain sorts of people. Um, it has built a culture now for more than 40 years. When I was director, the deputy director, I had been at CBO uh, from one year after the founding of the organization. And I would tell people that we had 36 years of experience between us, um, he had 35 and I had one. <laughs> um, he has built CBO um, as much or more than any of the directors built CBO <clears throat> through a, a resolute nonpartisanship. Um, people I work with the CBO don't, did not know at the time what I would do if I were running the U.S. healthcare system. <laughs> they didn't know what I would personally do about tax policy. They know a little bit now because I've left and now I can speak my mind about policy, but they didn't know it's CBO. And CBO makes no recommendations because recommendations involve policy judgments as well as sort of underlying analysis. So, um, so part of this is that you need to have a, build a culture. Another part of CBO's nonpartisanship is scrutiny from outsiders. CBO has advisors um, who are selected to range across the political spectrum, across the spectrum of economic views, and so on. Uh, and people at CBO, including the director, care more about the approval of experts on the outside than they care about the approval of members of Congress. And that's super important. I wanted people on the Harvard faculty, other faculties, practitioners, to respect the work that we did more than I wanted Harry Reid or Nancy Pelosi or John Boehner or Paul Ryan to like it. So that's how you establish nonpartisanship and maintain it. Um, then there's the question of well, how do you maintain nonpartisan, how do you maintain the existence of your organization <laughs> when you're basically a thorn in the side of at least half of the Congress <laughs> at any given moment? And <laughs> the answer to that is partly that members of Congress really do want information. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really do. I spend a lot of time in members' offices, a lot of time on the phone with members, a lot of time with member staffs. They actually want to learn to do better as they see better. Now, they differ a lot in what they think is be better for the country, but they want the information. Um, that's part of it. Another part of it is that CBO has an, uh, an attitude of 
total accommodation to what the Congress needs in every respect except the answer. Like, we would not change the number at the end of the day under pressure. Has not happened, will not happen. But if you want to call me in the middle of the night to talk about it, I'm available. You want me to come to the Hill? I'm available. You want us to work around the clock? We're available. You want to be in the press, not me? That's our plan. So it's very, we have a very clear view, and my colleagues, former colleagues who are there have this view of serving the Congress. Um, members of Congress like to be served. <laughs> um, and CBO's always had that, that attitude um, of, of their, of their um, to serve. Um, another thing you need to be CBO and to survive is you need a certain amount of tactical adroitness. Uh, um, there are lots of ways to end up being partisan. One of them is to steer the analysis some direction. Another one is to only work on some people's legislation. Another one is to release certain analyses uh, on Tuesday mornings and other analyses Friday afternoons. There's a whole set of ways in which one can slip into being partisan, um, consciously or unconsciously, or which one can be blamed, accused of being partisan, even if it's just an accident. So people would ask me in 2009 and 10, why did you release that when you released it? Because we got done. <laughs> like it came right off the printer <laughs> into the, into the, onto the website, into the hands of members of Congress when we finished it. But it was a reminder about how sensitive people were to certain sorts of announcements, certain sorts of information, how you presented it mattered uh, in terms of the political potency. So, um, so you have to be sort of adroit in that way as well. So those are the things that, that, that CBO has, uh, the customs that CBO has built up and relied on. Um, the healthcare analysis we did in 2009 and 10 was at that time certainly the biggest, most demanding uh, set of work CBO had ever done in the 35 years leading up to that mm -hmm. point. Because of the complexity of the work, um, we had 40 or more people working on healthcare um, over a year and a half, desperately hard and also because of the political stakes. Um, and what we relied on was the set of cultural traits I've described and then a vast amount of expertise uh, on the part of uh, people at CBO on healthcare policy, on the healthcare health insurance systems, on data, on modeling, and so on. And the work that you saw from CBO last week was uh, an example of that. Um, I was super proud to, of that work. Did you have to hire new people from outside to provide the healthcare expertise when this began? We did hire some from outside, but it's very hard to staff up in real time. Sure. Um, you, know, you, you hire people who are finishing uh, degrees, and you hire them in January, and they come in the summer, and they learn some things, and by the fall, they're helpful. So if you're in 2009, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot had happened by the time people we hired came on board. Can but you hiring get people seconded from HHS or similar, <laughs> or is that uncustomary? We would not really accept that because, because it would look like we were being okay. sort of swept in the executive branch. Okay. Um, so, so let me stop there. That, that's, so that, that's the background. We can talk more about the agency. We can obviously talk a lot more about the estimate from okay. last week or other, other issues. Well, thank you. Thanks, Doug. Uh, I was going to lead off with a few questions and then open it up for all of us to talk. And the reason to uh, lead with these few questions is to, for some of you who don't know the history of budget analysis in the federal government, it's important to recognize that the U.S. government for the first 150 years didn't even have a consolidated federal budget. So federal budgeting is a relatively new experience that postdates the First World War, which in some ways seems almost unimaginable that we could have gotten through something as large as the First World War without even a consolidated budget, but we did, but that changed. And it changed with the creation of something called the Bureau of the Budget, which has morphed into something called the OMB, uh, Office of Management and Budget, which is connected to the executive branch and has, for many years, done uh, its own terrific work, but from the perspective of the executive. And I do think that you and OMB, certainly along with the blue chip people, compare forecasts all the time yes. to make sure that you're coming up with similar answers. But... I don't understand whether or not they're constrained in the same way that you are by this requirement of not being able to anticipate changes in tax revenues or government policies as uh, that might affect one of your projections. My understanding is that you operate within a parameter that sounds to me like it could be confining for forecasting, but obviously you do it. Is that am I getting it right? And is is 
is it confining and what, what are the pluses and minuses? Uh, uh, so CBO makes budget projections that are based on a set of economic projections. Mm -hmm. But the economic projections are also dependent on the budget projections. The fixed point is that CBO works on, with current law. Whatever the tax law is, whatever the Social Security and Medicare rules are, that's what CBO starts with. And it constructs an economic forecast and budget projections that are mutually consistent based on what current law is. Mm -hmm. OMB will produce an economic forecast that is consistent with the president's proposals for the budget. So if the president is proposing a big tax cut that would spur business investment or uh, people's work or effort or something else, then OMB will build those effects into its basic budget. Okay. So when you compare the quality of economic forecasts across the agencies, you're not quite comparing apples to apples. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and when you're comparing this to what the blue chip, blue chip is a consensus forecast of leading economic forecasters. Blue chip is incorporating neither current law nor the president's policies, proposals. They're incorporating what they think will happen to fiscal policy. So as a pure, as a pure forecast, right, in the economy based on that. So as a pure forecast, they're gonna, most likely to get it right because they can guess that this part of the president's plan will get ignored and that part will be accepted and so on. As a practical matter, though, um, the uncertainty of economic forecasts is so vast <laughs> um, that the differences based on the differences in the fiscal policy assumptions are usually not a very big deal. There can be occasions where it matters a lot, like when the fiscal cliff, the whole set of tax cuts enacted in 2001 and 2003 that were scheduled to expire, and we came up to that cusp. CBO's forecast would, was way off mm -hmm. by the current law assumption, and Blue Chip would have gotten it right, but the Blue Chip guessed that those tax cuts would basically be extended. Mm -hmm. But those occasions are rare. Mostly that, that issue, for, although we focused a lot on trying to get it right or doing alternatives, relative to the uncertainty of economic forecasting, it's not that big a deal. Let me ask you a different question. I mean, young people here at the school must think that we live in a tremendously challenging time of uh, uh, gridlock and of the inability to move budgets and the fact that for the last... I don't know how many years we haven't been able to pass a budget on time. What is it, seven, eight years since we got a budget out on time, something like that? And yet the evidence is that since the 1970s, really, since the Nixon impoundment fights, the Congress and the President have had great difficulty moving this process through. Was that your experience? And do you see any way through that now that you're out of CBO? Or is, or is there no way out of, out of that gridlock that they're going to have to deal with as a generation? Well, the budget process in, in my in my time of doing this has basically been ignored. <laughs> so um, we're just sort of ad living, and that is too bad. Um, I think it has its roots in a more fundamental lack of understanding by the American people about the federal budget, which has led to a sort of, for the moment, irresolvable fight between the parties. But if uh, federal spending today, as a percentage of GDP, is equal to its average over the last 50 years. Federal revenues as a percentage of GDP are just slightly above their average of the last 50 years. And for Americans across most of the income distribution, uh, federal taxes are a smaller share of income than at almost any point in the last 30 years. And for corporations less, too. And there's, I don't think there's one in 20 Americans who would guess that or believe it if I said it. <laughs> um, so we're confused as a people mm -hmm. <laughs> about what's happening. I think we're confused for a few reasons. One is that you know, nobody likes paying taxes, including me. <laughs> so you always sort of feel that. Number two, state and local governments have actually grown mm -hmm. in their financial uh, footprint. Number three, the federal government has grown a lot in its regulatory influence, which is an important topic, but a somewhat different topic. Um, what's happened in the budget is that we have had growing spending for Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, which are programs that provide uh, essentially pensions and health insurance for older Americans. And those programs are growing a lot relative to the size of the economy because we have more older Americans and because healthcare costs have grown. And those trends are both gonna continue. So that's pushing up federal spending by a lot. Um, it's pushing it up though in programs that are mostly pretty popular. Meanwhile, other sorts of spending are mostly coming down or staying flat as a percentage of GDP. The defense spending fell a lot in the 90s as a share of GDP, and it's bounced around, and we should have a good debate about it, but it's bouncing around a much lower level than was true in the 70s or 80s. Um, 
means-tested programs, so benefit programs based on income, um, apart from the healthcare programs, are flat or down as a percentage of GDP over decades now. Um, and the annual appropriations for non-defense purposes, so this is the thing Congress has to vote for every year, this funds um, veterans' health care, it funds highways, it funds the NIH, it funds a lot of the federal government's support for research, uh, infrastructure, the justice system, and so on. That sort of spending has been trendless um, for my entire life. Rises a bit, falls a bit, basically now where it was 50 years ago. Um, Nothing related as a percentage. To no, as Actually, a percentage of GDP. As, as a percentage a percent. of GDP. So we're spending more. We're spending it in places that people mostly like, and yet, in, in the abstract, people don't much like government spending because it means higher taxes. <laughs> so until we come clean with ourselves about that, it's very hard to figure out what we should do about the budget. And because of that. We pretend we're going to do things we're not actually going to do. <laughs> and because of that, it's very hard to have a sensible budget process. So the reason we've had all this problem with the appropriations bills is because in the abstract, having a tight cap on these annual appropriations seems like a good way to rein in government bureaucracy. But when you get down to the actual appropriations and you say, well, NIH, what do we want to do? Very few people actually want to do the 18% cut that the Trump administration just proposed. Very few people want to reduce spending for veterans' health care. Very few want less spending on highways. <laughs> Very few want less spending on the Centers for Disease Control. I mean, so you set targets to meet some overall objective that sounds good in the abstract that are totally unrealistic when it comes to adding up the pieces. And not surprisingly then, you get totally stuck. At the last minute, there's some deal that is cut between the two parties <laughs> to get enough votes to keep the lights on in the government. And until we sort of get over this the sort of talking past each other on what the main issues are, I think we're going to keep having this problem. And this, but just another example of that, um, Republicans in the Congress won't vote for the Trump budget, with rare exception. Mm -hmm. Democrats certainly won't. Mm -hmm. So they've deliberately, for political reasons, and people in both parties do things for political reasons, <laughs> but they started a long way away from where the outcome's going to be. It's take a long time to get there, and a lot of yelling and screaming, and that's going to slow down our ability to move other things forward. And so you anticipate a lot of continuing resolutions because we're not going to get to a Can budget? A oh, sure, Francis. What has happened to CBO's own budget? <laughs> CBO's had a little over 200 people on the staff for most of the last few decades. And there was, we were going to get a lot bigger to work more on healthcare policy. And then the, the sort of political winds shifted and there was a desire to cut back on this appropriations. And CBO's was cut back in concert with the rest of the government. So CBO's back down to the 220 or 30 people it's had it, for a long time. Is it time. a war with the Congress? Is it very hard to keep it at that number? No, not particularly. There haven't been attempts to really slash no. it. No. So let me go back first to the institutional question. After the creation of the, OM, uh, the OMB or its predecessor right after the First World War, immediately after the Second World War, a second set of economic overview institutions was created in, this, in the Council of Economic Advisors, which is attached to the presidency, but a new joint economic committee was created in the Congress. And I, I think a fair question would be, why, isn't, why hasn't the JEC uh, grown in terms of its staffing to provide much of the work that CBO does? Or was it too prone to being captured by the parties? Is that part of what led to Congress to create a separate CBO rather than I think the JEC? I guess so. The JEC has no particular authority over anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the budget committees have CBO to provide analysis. So there's a close symbiotic relationship here. The budget committees are important in part because CBO does analysis that allows people to think about the budget. Okay. And that gives them a, and plus there's a budget process, at least in principle, mm -hmm. and that gives the budget committees a foothold <clears throat> in the day-to-day -day business. The JEC is there doesn't control policy in any way. It's, so it serves, a, I think, a useful advisory sure. yeah. information role, but it matters a lot to actually control something. Okay. Another question also about institutions, then I'm going to try and turn it over to, to folks. Are there particular parts of the government that are more difficult to forecast? I mean, one would think mm -hmm. for my generation of cost overruns in the military, particularly for weapons, how closely involved does CBO get itself in on things like the F-35 or other very complicated long-term development technology processes and how, how does, does that make it more complicated for you to do your work? Well, CBO does report every year 
about the cost of the future year's defense program, which is a multi-year plan the Pentagon releases. CBO invariably thinks this will be more expensive. This is a plan of how many ships of what sorts, how many planes, and so on. CBO invariably thinks that will be more expensive than the Defense Department thinks it will be. And CBO's. And I don't think anybody on the Hill is really surprised <laughs> that the Defense Department is is aiming low <laughs> in its in its estimate of the costs. Um, and you know, then the Defense Department turns out to be wrong about that. Um, I think that's a fairly uh, so that's a challenge. Um, I think the bigger challenge has been on uh, entitlement programs, on transfer programs, particularly in healthcare. The rate of growth of healthcare spending in this country is very volatile, actually. Mm. Um, not just the federal government across across the country. Um, and high? Do they all understand how high it is? So generally high. Healthcare spending per person has grown a lot faster than GDP per person, but it varies a lot over time. Uh, so in two thousand. Right before Medicare added a drug benefit about a dozen years ago, health uh, drug spending in this country was growing very, very rapidly. CBO and everybody else thought that drug spending growth would slow significantly. CBO made the estimate of the cost of the drug benefit based on this slowdown. Um, notwithstanding CBO looking for a slowdown, the actual cost of the drug benefit has been one half what CBO expected. <laughs> and that is not, that almost none of that is like the federal program versus national drug spending, it is that national drug spending, like now, is half what it was projected to be a decade ago or a dozen years ago. At the time CBO did that estimate, CBO was viewed as having understated the cost because the actuaries at CMS, who also do an estimate, had a much higher number. Do they much, know what CMS is? So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is the agency in the Department of Health and Human Services that runs the Medicare and Medicaid programs. They have independent actuaries who are strikingly independent. They are not partisan. They do their work. And sometimes, and they're quite smart. Their estimate of the cost of the drug benefit was well above CBO's. I say that the actual fact for like the, the latest year is half what CBO had expected. And almost all that miss was what is national drug spending turned out to be. Final one question, then I'll throw it open. Uh, dyna dynamic uh, scoring is a topic of heated discussion among economists, and I suspect the general civilian population, maybe one in a hundred, knows what dynamic scoring is all about. Can you help us all understand what dynamic scoring is and what it's intended to do and what it is thought to be dangerous at doing? When CBO mm. estimates the effect of a change in policy, it incorporates the behavioral responses that it thinks will happen. So if you raise the payment rate for something, then more of that something's going to happen. If you cut the payment rate, less will happen. CBO incorporates that kind of uh, that kind of that consideration in its estimates. But by longstanding tradition, CBO has not incorporated behavioral responses <coughs> that would change the size of the overall economy. So if you thought some change in legislation would lead to people to work harder or work less, or to save more or save less, behavior that would change GDP, then CBO would take that off the table. And the reason for that, well, there are various reasons for that. Um, there's been increasing pressure over time for CBO to incorporate those kinds of responses. I think that's basically right to make that kind of change. Um, and when I was at CBO, we built up the machinery for incorporating those kinds of economic responses. Um, and when I left CBO, I wrote a paper for the Brookings Papers advocating the inclusion of those effects in estimates for big pieces of legislation that might have noticeable effects on the economy. So you don't do this for a post office naming. But you do do it if you're going to do comprehensive health reform or comprehensive immigration reform or comprehensive tax reform or something mm -hmm. else that's important in an macroeconomic sense. So I think dynamic score, and it's called dynamic. That's a kind of clever code word because it suggests the other thing is static. It's not static. It's got a lot of behavioral responses. But, but leaving aside the clever naming, I think dynamic scoring is basically good if done for the legislation for which it really matters. And I think the world is basically moving itself that way. And speaking from the dean's left, the issue was that the Republicans were the largest backers of dynamic scoring, and many who were not uh, of the same view felt that the Republicans were doing this in order to impute consequences in terms of growth from lower tax policies. And of course, 
if you could get CBO to produce high revenue consequences from lower taxes, you would have found the holy grail of Republican tax policy. You would have proved Arthur Laffer right, and we're still waiting for that to happen, but that's from my side. Questions? Joe. So uh, during the ACA process, uh, the White House with used Gruber's model. So to what extent can we expect? Tell people what the Gruber model is. So that because the scoring that, that uh, CBO does is very, very important to the way Congress looks at legislation. And there is this concept that something should be revenue neutral. You may want to talk about that as well. So when you're working on legislation, you don't want it leaking out that what you're proposing is in fact going to drive up the deficit or something. So in the his I don't know whether it worked, but in the history of the ACA, the White House was using a model that was allegedly doing what, able to make a rough estimate close to what CBO would do. And it, it, a, is it your impression that, that it worked? And B, would you expect to see more of that? Well, there was a, some point later last week, um, there was a report that the White House itself had estimated that the health bill moving through the House would cost 26 million people their health insurance, okay. um, compared with CBO's 24 million. Right. And uh, the administration quickly noted that that was not, in fact, their own view, but that was their attempt to, to predict what CBO would ultimately say. And I thought that was probably right, although I have no inside information. I'm not surprised they're trying to guess what CBO will say, and I'm not surprised that they, can, that they well, came, reason reason came I mean, reasonably close. Yeah. Um, I don't, that's good. I think. I mean, other people should take seriously what the effects of legislation will be before they propose it. And the more modeling of that sort that goes on at OMB, uh, the better. Yeah, so, okay. Nico, you had a question. I have, que I have two here. questions. One is just what surprised you most when you took the job? What were you like, holy? Oh. <laughs> um, the range of topics about which I have to be knowledgeable or at least sound knowledgeable. <laughs> and I worked across a number of parts of the federal government. My, I'm a pretty broad person in economic policy. Um, not super deep in any of those areas, but I'm pretty broad. But I sat down at the first meeting, and I thought, oh my god, I have to go to the Congress tomorrow morning and talk about stimulus legislation. There's so many things I ought to know that I don't really know. And I sat for two hours at a table about this size, uh, and people around the table at, from CBO, people I had, were just, was just meeting at that moment, started filling my head full of facts and analysis and interpretation. Wow. And I finished those two hours, and I turned to the deputy director who's sitting there, and I said, this is great. I love this. <laughs> and that was really the story of my time at CBO, which was I learned a tremendous amount from people who were there. I asked hard questions. I pushed people a lot, but I learned a lot from them about a whole range of topics, and I loved it. But it was, but it, I was, I was struck by how many things uh, I, I had to be on top of. Then my second question is, you said that uh, one of the things that uh, people really wanted information, members of Congress and their offices wanted information. And I just wondered about what feels like a broad, nonpartisan, cultural uh, kind of a bias against expertise, right? Mm -hmm. That people, when they want, before they go to their doctor, they Google it. After they go to their doctor, they Google it. That, you know, people talk about content creators instead of journalists. And so kind of deprofessionalization, an emphasis on, uh, an emphasis away from expertise. And did you have any sense of that? Did you experience that? What, like, this in some sense, the CBO is like, almost like the high temple of expertise. Well, the members of Congress and their staffs did not view us as the source of God's truth, nor should they have. <laughs> we were one source of information. They had a lot of others. Um, it's also true that members of Congress are not generally deductive thinkers. They are people people. They meet a lot of people. They soak up what those people are interested in, trying to accomplish, worried about, and they try to formulate that into ways forward. But that, that's what they should be good at doing. So when we talk about healthcare, for example, I think for many members of Congress, uh, the most important source of information 
was the president of the hospital in their district. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, groups of physicians and nurses and so on from their districts. And they would say to me, well, the president of my hospital says blankety blank. Mm -hmm. But most of them understood enough that that might not be the full story. <laughs> and my standard response to that was, well, I believe that's true about that hospital. <laughs> but in general, the facts show that hospitals are blah, blah, blah. And again, I think most members of Congress understood that it was possible that their hospital president was either not giving them the full story or that they you know, were from Minneapolis, where hospitals are different from, from the way the hospitals work in Miami. Mm -hmm. So I found pretty, pretty good reception. I mean, I guess I should say the people who tended to call me were ones who were most interested. So I didn't impose myself on all 535 members of Congress. It's a little selection bias, the ones who called. I found them pretty interested. And I think there is more respect for expertise in, in the workings behind closed doors than you would see in, in public. So it's a long-standing story of CBO directors before me and including me that you sit in a hearing and some member will just rip into you in some totally uninformed sounding way, but very politically persuasive sounding way. And then you'll meet them in their office the next day and they'll be totally different <laughs> in how they interact with you. So I think it's mostly good in the sense that it does mean whatever you see on TV sometimes, that behind closed doors, members are quite serious. Helen, in the back. Former um, the people see. An impartial organization who came under, I happen to know because I know the chair of the protective board that looks after it, came under huge pressure directly from government because they were about to issue a perfectly ordinary economic analysis which coincided with the Brexit vote, the referendum. And he came under huge pressure to delay in some way, something that could not be delayed. And, um, his job was to protect the impartiality of the ONS, and he very, very robustly pushed back. But I just wondered the extent to which, in a different, and the IFS gets that as well, I know. Um, Institute for Fiscal Studies in the UK. You may have said this at the beginning, I'm sorry if I missed it, but to what extent do you get that kind of, and I don't mean blundering Trump, I mean that kind of regular undermining and who are your formal protectors? Who is the guardian of your impartiality? Because if you are impartial, it's very hard to defend yourself. Yeah, so I did not get leaned on very much in that way. Uh, and I think I didn't because there had been 35 years of CBO directors who did not budge. And I think that was pretty well understood. Um, at one point in 2009, uh, Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, said to the press, in response to some testimony I was giving, well, if Elmendorf thinks he has it figured out, let him run for Congress. <laughs> um, but let then, but then when the Senate turned to health reform very seriously in the fall of 2009, uh, Senator Reid had me into his office. And I thought, oh, now we're going to find out <laughs> how this really works. And he just talked a bit about his background, asked about my background, told me the things that were important to him and his members, asked me what, what I was looking for um, in a productive relationship. And the answer I gave was that we were gonna work super hard for him as we did for Senator McConnell, some at the same time and as we had in the House. And we wanted to be incredibly cooperative on, we go as fast as we could, we be incredibly cooperative on the process of things. But of course, the analysis was gonna be ours. I said it, he took it, and that's the way he lived it. So we talked a lot in the fall, he wanted to make sure he was proceeding in the right way. We'd ask for the right things by the right timing. But he never tried, never, to lean on me to change any answer. And do you anticipate that situation will continue under this government? <laughs> yes. Yes. Because the executive branch doesn't matter for CBO. Yeah. And I think the Congress will be the same. And I think the, the protectors, in a way, are, are the budget committees. The budget committees in the Congress, they need CBO. Their strength comes partly from the numbers from CBO. Mm -hmm. So they're the protectors. But you know, generations of members of Congress have stood up for CBO. Paul Ryan is somebody who was critical of some of our analyses, um, but was a very strong defender of CBO as an institution. And I don't think that's changing. Students have questions back here. Nancy, uh, oh, back here, yes. 
Uh, hi, uh, I'm Andy. I'm a first year MP student at the Kennedy School. Um, I have a question about kind of recent headlines in terms of the CBOs coming to, to, to the press. When you see the national uninsured fig uninsured figures slapped across headlines from you know Washington Post and the New York Times and stuff like that, do you see that as a positive development in the sense that CBOs estimates are making it to the forefront, or do you see that in a negative light in the sense that the underlying assumptions and this uncertainty with regard to that figure are not necessarily making it all the way through, or both? That's a fair question. I think it's mostly positive. Uh, I think it's good for people to look for objective analysis. Uh, I think it'd be better if they understood more clearly the confidence region <laughs> around those point estimates. Mm -hmm. And we, when I was at CBO, we did a lot of work to build up the notion of confidence intervals. Um, we did a report on the effects of the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage, and we reported explicit confidence intervals. We did a report on the effect of moving Medicare to a premium support system, which is a more competitive system. And we had a whole section of the report that was about the uncertainty, where we thought it was particularly acute. We tried to quantify uncertainty. In our macroeconomic estimates, we did a lot of work with the ranges. I think that was all very good, but it didn't have the effect I was looking for in the public debate. Part of the problem is if you have a low number and a high number, the people who want the number to be low quote the low <coughs> one. The ones who want it to be high quote the high one. The ones who don't aren't trying to take a side, but are short on have few column inches to work with, pick the number in the middle or take the average. <laughs> so the newspaper stories turn out the same way, and the but the but the sort of reprinting, if you will, of the CBO estimates through the various press releases of members of Congress and advocacy groups gets totally muddled because there are all these different numbers running around. So I believe in it as a matter of principle. I spent a lot of a lot of weekends <laughs> trying to figure this out. I would still do it if I were there. But it didn't help very much because it's just a level of complexity that it's hard to transmit. I spent a lot of time with reporters trying to make sure that their one paragraphs or, or three paragraph stories were right. And they would say, we'd, we'd have crafted some really trimmed down, efficient, clear paragraph to open our report. And they would call and they'd say, well, now I need a version that real people can read. Like, I spent all weekend crafting that thing. <laughs> but then they'd throw, start throwing out modifying phrases and caveats and so on. And I thought it was my job to help them get the column inches they had as right mm -hmm. as they could. And I think most people at some level understand that these are not, that there's uncertainty in this. Professor Temkin. Yes, thanks. Um, so Doug, this picks up on some of the questions that were asked in particular Nico's question. Um, I did uh, want to get a little bit more of your reaction to the recent, recent development. So, um, the easy way to ask this is when you heard the response from the White House, um, and I understand you made very clear that the, the executive branch is, is irrelevant to, to, to the work that this, the CBO does. Um, did, did that sound to you like the sort of same old, same old, um, you know, partisanship uh, use, you know, sort of treatment of CBO, or did you suspect? Um, as many others, I think, did, that this is a signal of a, of a new way of looking at the CBO specifically, but also question of, of expertise and, and, and analysis. That is, in a situation of deep partisanship, the CBO is there. Uh, the CBO will not be uh, knocked down or cut, uh, it, but it could grow increasingly uh, relevant uh, and diminished in its impact uh, in a world in which some might think that we have uh, political representatives operating in some sort of bad faith. That is, that the it's simply numbers that are used for political argument. But if it doesn't serve an, an ideological purpose, uh, then it gets sort of either just attacked, not not just ignored and kind of dismissed, but attacked. So I guess I'm the question is there. There are two questions here. One is. Are we seeing a, a, a shift? Are we seeing, uh, and this is also a question I think which is relevant in your, this, the current hat that you're wearing as the dean of the school. Are we seeing a shift away from you know, healthy respect in the public policy world or the political world uh, from impartial expertise? Uh, um, that's one part of the question. And then the other part of it is uh, you know, how, you know, to what, what effect does this work have um, in given this kind of change that might be happening, if you agree with the premise. So 
I thought that the attacks on CBO from the administration and from some Republicans in Congress were at the high end of the range we have seen over the previous few decades, but not particularly out of that range. Uh, I think lots of people are, have a sort of hair-trigger reaction now to attacks by the administration on the fundamental institutions of our political system. And I think that hair trigger is right to have. I have it myself because the administration has been attacking fundamental institutions of our political system in a way that is, has no precedent in recent US history. But I think, in fact, the attacks on CBO are, more consist are, are not so much out of that past range as have been the attacks on the press and the judiciary and other, other foundation stones of our system. So I thought I think it's appropriate to respond to those attacks, and I made myself immediately available uh, to go on TV and radio shows and talk to reporters to explain to stand up for CBO. But as I said, I don't think those attacks were particularly outside of the range. I was more concerned, in fact, at that same period by uh, Mitch Mulvaney's uh, repeating this this accusation that the Obama administration has somehow faked the unemployment statistics. <laughs> that was a much more that, that that was more out of line with previous experience, mm -hmm. and totally without basis. And so I spoke up clearly in defense of the statistical agencies of the government as well. That's more like the ONS story from the UK. I I think that the reaction to CBO's analysis is a very reassuring sign that we are not in a post-factual world. I think those numbers were taken very seriously, as they should as they should have been. And I find, so I find that reassuring. I don't think we're gonna move beyond that. Now I've not read all the press. I'm sure there are lots, I, I was on, you know, I was on a Fox Business show. I was on a MSNBC show. I've, so I've heard sort of different lead-ins before you get to the former director of Elmendorf, what do you think? And there, there's a lot of variation in that, but, but there are a lot of different stations who are interested in having, in reporting on CBO's numbers. So I think that's a good sign. I worry about many aspects of what, what is happening now, but, but the treatment of CBO, I think, is, is actually not one of, one of the high worries on my list, except for my parochial interest in, <laughs> in the, the agency. The other possibility or the other part of the equation is not attacks, but um, do you foresee any possibility that CBO is simply sidelined to some extent? That, you know, just, okay, they came out. Whatever. No, I think the factors, I think both the noble factors and the, and the practical factors that sustain CBO will continue to sustain it. During your tenure, did it, feel like, did it feel like the prominence of the office shifted or did it feel consistent? We became, we were more prominent in 2009 and 10 than CBO had been before that. There had been short spikes previously, but there had not been such a sustain. We went through nine months where we were pretty close to the front of the newspaper a lot of times. Mm -hmm. That was new for CBO. But was that just the size and scope of the legislation you were scoring, or was that something that shifted in the overall landscape? I think it was mostly the size and scope of the legislation. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was the biggest change in U.S. social policy since 1965 mm -hmm. and the establishment of Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, I think it was mostly that at the time. I think, if anything, there are people who want, to, who want facts and expertise to inform policy are standing up more strongly for places like CBO and are more interested, right? Subscriptions to the New York Times are up. <laughs> so I think interest in what CBO is doing is high in, in part as a response to other things that people are seeing in, in the society. Yeah, I would just, subscription to the New York Times are up, but subscription to a lot of other newspapers, yes. local papers are down. Mm -hmm. So it's a, you know, there, there, there is something. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not so, convinced. So, so, of so that. I actually made yeah. that point, echoing yeah. you at a, yeah. at to the a group I was teaching this morning. I'm, that I'm more worried about. State, I think you taught yeah. me this yeah. about about the press media at sort of monitoring state and local government activities yep. than monitoring federal government activities. Let me uh, use that as a way to close because we're coming to the end of our hour, and we've really appreciated your time with us. Um, Putting on your hat as the Kennedy School Dean, but looking at this question of expertise and how extensively it reaches into the democratic public, are there <coughs> things that we at the school should be doing to make that reach 
further? Is there a way to construct expert knowledge? What, what, what do you see as important? That is the big question for us now at the Kennedy School, and I hope we're all wrestling with it. Uh, I'm wrestling with it. I think, I think there are a few parts of this. One is that we need to just propagate the things we are learning here at the Kennedy School more effectively. Um, that means basic things, like we have a new website that we'll roll out in a couple of months. I didn't start this. It was not started since the election, obviously, but it's important. And one thing that I have pushed for is this website be a way not just of speaking to students and prospective students and alumni, but speaking to policymakers, public leaders, who are looking for expertise on the Iranian nuclear deal, on Me budget media. issues, media. on health care policy. To, to the media, though. Well, to the media, right. Well, and, and, mean, and to intermediaries. It doesn't huge. have to go directly to a member of Congress. It can go through the New York Times or through Politico or Roll Call or The Hill or or even smaller papers, I think, is part right. of Nicholson. Right, and yeah. for state and local governments, you got to go other ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think part of it is that we need to get our word out more clearly. I think another part of it is that we need to, all of us, make sure that the work we are doing is serving the broad public good. Hmm. Um, people who are angry at the elites in their countries, the U.S. and others, are partly right, in my judgment, to be angry. Um, I think um, too much of what, and only this particularly... Uh, blame at the Kennedy School's door, but too much of what um, elites or leading governments, leading countries have been doing have been darn good for the elites and not so good for other people. And I think all of us who have had positions to influence the public debate um, need to be very attentive to that. <clears throat> Dean Elmendorf, thank you for me personally. And Nico, do you want to close this? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, both to Richard and Doug, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. Music.com.